Okay, you're welcome to another edition of UCD's Business Impact. It's been an incredible roller coaster of emotions for all of us in the last few weeks. And with global supply chains and healthcare supply chains, particularly at top of mind, my uh, guest on today's podcast, I thought would be ideal to go through some of those issues. And that's Professor Donna Marshall from the UCD School of Business. Donna has researched, taught, and published widely on the whole issue of supply chain management. She has advised companies and governments and NGOs and other types of organizations about how they can make a success of their supply chains, do things more sustainably and do things more, I suppose, overall successfully from the point of view of their objectives. So you're very welcome below to Business Impact, Donna, first of all. Thanks very much, Emma. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for, for coming on. And I suppose uh, back in 2008, 2009, everyone from bus drivers to taxi men became experts in bonds and subordinated debt and <laughs> bank balance sheets. And we were all, you know, really talking very poetically about what these various concepts meant. That has now changed into 2020's version, which is supply chains, ventilators, PPE, uh, respiratory epidemiologists, <laughs> respiratory masks. I mean, we've yeah. all we've all become kind of barroom experts on these things. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was because you actually know a little bit about how global supply chains work and when they get snarled up and when gaps appear. So you've been listening and watching all of this stuff. I'm sure people who you've heard some stuff that kind of made you gasp and go, oh, that's a bit strange yeah. um, in the last few weeks. Have you been surprised by how the healthcare supply chains, I know that's a particular kind of pillar of the whole global system, but have you been surprised that how badly they have performed in some respects, or have you actually taken the contrary view and, and, and sort of thought, considering what we're dealing with here, they've actually been actually not too bad in terms of resilience? In terms of the, the healthcare supply chains, it's been a tale of, of very different reactions and um, different circumstances. I think in certain countries where they have very good infrastructure around testing and around equipment, you know, um, Germany, for instance, the response compared to other countries has been has been very good. Um, and I think if you just look at Germany and you look at the number of deaths compared to to other countries, because they had testing regimes, because they had their federal system uh, of healthcare, uh, they've come out of it actually looking much better than than a lot of other countries. So I think um, it really depends on the supply chain. It really depends on the country as to kind of how, how they've managed it. And I mean, obviously, they've got more and more stretched globally in the last, say, 100 years. I mean, I, I do a lot of research on his financial history and economic history. And, you know, a lot of supply chains were either in Ireland or in the UK, very much localized. Now it's a lot of it in the Far East, in Asia. Has the stretching out of these supply chains, is that kind of our crucial problem, that they're just so unwieldy, they're covering such large distances, they've so many players in the chain, that just, just, just the nature of them, the complexity alone, is one of the reasons that we're finding it hard to, to catch up. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, if you look at how supply chains have evolved, um, even over the last uh, maybe 30 years, the complexity in certain industries is just unbelievable. Um, if you look at the fashion industry, for instance, the, the fashion industry, industry is so complex. And I think that's one of the reasons that they're having such a hard time at the moment. And it, again, it depends on the brand you're looking at. It depends on the supply chain. And, you know, I've been really impressed with certain responses um, within the fashion industry. And I've, I've been completely appalled with other uh, uh, responses. So if you take H&M, for instance, 
if you looked at the beginning of um, the crisis, the response from many of the, the big brands that a lot of people know and love was absolutely horrific. It was this knee-jerk reaction of it, like a dash for cash, make sure we are okay within our brand and we don't really care about what happens within the supply chain. And it was such a short-sighted and terrible reaction. And I think the thing is about where we are at the moment and the crisis we're in, you know, research shows that we embed that our memories when much deeper when we're in a crisis situation. And I think a lot of the brands who reacted very badly, that's going to come home to roost for them. Um, so if you have a brand like H&M, so H&M, when uh, the crisis happened, they actually said that they were going to pay for the orders that they had asked, even though the orders uh, couldn't be fulfilled, there was no demand for the orders, that they, they looked at their supply chain as part of the enterprise, part of an entire entity, whereas a lot of the other companies with that knee-jerk reaction went very, very institutional. It's us against everybody else. And they actually forgot that their supply chain is part of their organization. And I think that's one of the, the big failings at the moment was that knee-jerk reaction. And now we're starting to see some of those brands row back on that because as we all know, you know, we're in a, a reputation economy and uh, reputation is everything. And, and those stories are really going to stay with us. Yeah, I think the brand damage will take time to fully be seen and visible. In terms of the governments then, Donna, I mean, they're obviously coming into this this universe as well and having a big influence. I, I mean, you know, you can see a lot of governments going back to protectionism, making sure their own home market is supplied first. Um, we know President Trump is very particularly hot yeah. on that issue. I mean, where do governments fit in from your perspective? Um, are companies masters of their own destiny here or are governments very much leading the way this is going? Yeah, this is a really tough one because if you look at um, a lot of companies, you know, many, many companies, uh, the big powerful companies are, are multinational or transnational, whereas the reaction at the moment is very much on a, a, a national basis. So if you take, uh, if we're looking at the, the healthcare supply chains, you know, one of the instant reactions from India, which is one of the biggest uh, suppliers of active pharmaceutical ingredients was to stop exporting those ingredients. And the shockwaves around the world from that one decision were immense because you know they're one of the biggest producers of some of the most basic ingredients that we need for um, lots of everyday drugs. So at a time when we actually need to be coming together, when we need solidarity at a global level, we see this completely nationalistic protectionism happening and it couldn't happen at a worse time. I think uh, some of the other really appalling decisions, which could actually, you know, affect um, uh, the U EU into the future was Germany and the German decision to stop exporting uh, medical equipment. I mean, that was when Italy was in such dire straits and, and were begging the world for help. They were basically told by their, you know, biggest EU neighbors, we're not helping you. And that was such a a terrible signal uh, to have sent at that point. And I know Germany have rode back on that, but, but I think that's really stayed with, especially the Italian people um, who aren't impressed. And I, I think this is the thing, we really need to be thinking at multiple levels here. We need to have global coordination and global strategies because most of our uh, products, most of our services come at a multi multinational level. We do need to be looking at what we're doing at a national level as well. 
but also you know at a at a um uh, a lower level than that a local level to see what's needed um locally and uh, for for individuals so we've got to be thinking at those levels at, at all times and to have those reactions uh, people would say it, it's natural at that point but actually we were living in a very interconnected world and when we start making those uh, very big decisions, it has huge impacts, particularly in, in the developing world. So we have to be very, very careful. And I think for me, it's really about strategic decision making and the companies and also the countries making the right strategic decisions. And you can see where they're, they're being very clever and very creative and actually thinking at these multiple levels at once um, and coming up with very coherent, very cohesive strategies. And then you see the knee-jerk reactions from the companies, from the countries. And that's where we start to see the big failures. And I think, you know, one of the problems with Donald Trump is it's constant knee-jerk reactions to whatever it is, you know, whatever issue comes up on the day. And I think that's very, very dangerous for companies for supply chains and for for the health of, of America. And, and in terms of um, the US-China relationship, and I think we should probably bring in China onto the stage of this conversation at this point, clearly we've seen these pictures of trucks laden with medical equipment landing at Dublin airport, going down the M50, uh, making their deliveries to various Dublin hospitals. I mean, very vivid sort of footage and, and shows and highlights and showcases how important China is to global supply chains. Uh, in an environment of extreme scarcity, which is what we seem to be doing, does China, you know, do, does it just highlight how important China is or does it actually show that China gains a lot of diplomatic, political, geopolitical power because it can decide where these goods go to ultimately and then the life-saving benefits that go with them? Yeah, I think, I think with China, what we're seeing is definitely Chinese leadership coming onto the global stage. And I think at the same time, what we're seeing is the US leadership coming off the global stage. And uh, we all know that, that China is the, the factory of the world and something up to 70% of all goods produced in the world are, are coming from China. So China is hugely important. And China seems to be really stepping up to the mark in terms of helping countries, um, sending supplies, and also, you know, uh, in the way that they're responding to, to countries asking for help. And, you know, in times gone by, that would have been a very U.S. response. And that U.S. response seems to have gone to Xi Jinping, um, who now seems to be stepping forward. So, but I can't, I don't think we understand how important China is to almost every product in the world. From a supply chain point of view, if we want to have products and uh, we want to have uh, products on our shelves in, in the future, China has to, has to open up. And what I think we're going to see in the next uh, few months is a real scarcity because China, a lot of the, the goods that are coming out of China will be freighted, will be um, shipped around the world. And it usually takes uh, to get to us about six or eight weeks. So we've had a kind of lag of six to eight weeks where we still had the products coming in that we need. But the next six to eight weeks are going to be, I think, quite different because we've had the lockdown in uh, uh, certain parts of China where we couldn't get um, uh, certain products and um, components and, and, and things like that. But one of the things that, that I was also interested in as well was 
China started to, to open up certain shops and um, businesses and things like that. And I read today that um, Hermes, who's one of the, the big luxury brands, took a, a record-breaking $2.7 million in one day uh, in, their, in their flagship store in China. So it seems that within China, at least, you know, people are going back to almost normal in terms of, or, or even frenzied in terms of their shopping habits. So it'll be interesting to see how, how the next uh, month or two goes. I think there's probably a reaction from people because they're just, you know, maybe glad to be thinking that things are back to normal, that they're going out and shopping again. But I think we also have to be very, very careful because we hear about the second wave, about, about what's going to happen then. And do we also have to worry about our own capabilities in this part of the world? I mean, we're we're pretty much service services economies. We're not manufacturing economies in Ireland, the UK, the US. We don't make as much as we used to make, and we've sort of offshored that or subcontracted it out to other parts of the world. And I've been amazed at how difficult it has been for big companies to change around what they manufacture. I mean, we've seen Elon Musk apparently producing ventilators. We've seen some of the car, other car companies trying to do it, hand sanitizer. We've seen whiskey distilleries suddenly turning around what they do. And, and some of them have found it difficult. Is this really about the fact that now Asia is the manufacturing hub of the world and Europe stroke the US is, is the services hub? And that's, you know, something we just have to live with. Um, I, it's, it's a really tricky one, Emma. And I think that's the thing about you know, it, it's so um, multinational at the moment, like everything is, is very multinational. I think um, Ireland, relative to countries like the UK, has more of a manufacturing base. You know, our, our main um, industries are, are food, pharmaceuticals, medical devices. We have lots of electronics companies here. We have a lot of the technology companies, uh, European headquarters here. So in a way, I think Ireland on one hand is lucky because we have actually got, you know, a, a fairly um, good manufacturing base compared to some uh, developed economy, economies. But on the other hand, you know, we were already reeling from Brexit and what was going to happen with Brexit and the, the customs and the, the tariffs that were coming in uh, uh, because of that. And so maybe in some ways Irish companies, I know that there've been quite a few uh, business supplements and uh, opinion pieces from supply chain people saying to Irish companies, look, we have to get ready. We have to get our supply chains ready now because of Brexit. So in some ways, I think if companies had been heeding that advice, we were a bit more prepared because, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice was to look elsewhere rather than the UK uh, for other sources of supply, diversify um, your supply base and your suppliers actually try and build relationships. And I think one of the things that we are brilliant at in Ireland is relationship management. And that's what I see with the companies doing well, the brands doing well, the, the suppliers doing well um, around the world are the ones who have built up great relationships. And so we have kind of a, um, a dynamic capability in Ireland around our relationship management and our relationship building. So, you know, companies who have been clever have been establishing those relationships, diversifying those relationships, telling interesting stories about what they can do and how they can do it. So, you know, if companies have done that, I think they will survive. They will probably thrive um, when this is over. If they haven't done that, I think that's when things are going to come home to roost. I'm sure in, in a lot of your research, Donna, you're talking about trade-offs, trade-offs in supply chains between the cost of it and the reliability. And you're constantly saying this company is 5% more of a premium. 
but this other company is more reliable, et cetera. And you're making those decisions in real time or, or certainly annually. Is there some positivity here for Irish companies in the sense that, yes, they can't compete with the lower cost locations like China, but they do have an advantage of geography and reliability may be something that is prized in the next five or 10 years after this pandemic is over. And that suddenly somebody, a big company might say, let's have a more diverse base of suppliers in the next few years. And some of those Irish companies could slip onto the, the consideration list then in, in the future. Yeah, I think I think Irish companies have a huge opportunity. And, you know, whatever company, companies I talk to in Ireland, that, that's why I'm always saying to them that we do have a really big opportunity here. And I think there are several things that, that we have going for us. You know, we're on the edge of Europe. We're English speaking. We have a very talented pool of people. We're known for our education system. We have a very favorable um, corporate tax base. So there's lots of, lots of things that we really have going for us at the moment. But, you know, we have to be careful to make sure that we have indigenous companies and we have to be growing our indigenous companies so that we can be more self-sufficient in different uh, um, industries. But also, I think what we can do very well and something that I think is going to kind of bomb back onto the world stage is sustainability. And I think that's going to be the key in the next few years. And if we can start thinking now as Irish companies, as Irish suppliers, about how we make ourselves really interesting, how we make ourselves you know, really key in, in what will be kind of the su sustainability economy, I think that will that will give us a huge advantage. And from what I hear, especially if you're trying to break into the global uh, uh, value chains, the global supply chains, you know, the brands that I talk to are looking for the types of companies who do have these interesting stories to tell because that builds brand value and, and it protects brands. So if you have visibility and you have trans, tra transparency within your supply chains, that's going to be a huge advantage. So a lot of the work that I do is actually on transparency and on visibility. So I just did a, a study with 20 of the, the biggest brands in the world. And what I was seeing from those, from those companies was this kind of virtuous circle of advantage, which they are now reaping because of the crisis. Because if you, you know, just take it as common sense, if you can see into your supply chain, if you know who your suppliers are, all the way back to, to the raw material, you know where your fail points are, you know where you need to diversify, you know where um, perhaps there, there are um, issues, vulnerabilities, hotspots around different, maybe social sustainability issues, health issues, uh, uh, industrial relations issues. And you can use that visibility as an early warning system, as a, a risk mitigation system. And that's um, why some of the brands we're seeing now are doing very, very well because they have got that visibility. And so what they're looking for in suppliers and what we should be doing in Ireland as well is really ensuring that our companies have that visibility throughout their supply chain, that they see their fail points, but they also see their opportunities. And I think this is what people forget is, you know, when you do do something um, like that, when you do invest in looking at your supply base and being very strategic about it, there's going to be a short-term investment, obviously, and, and, and that's a cost. But in the long term, what we see are huge advantages. We see market advantages um, where there are market opportunities. 
we see process advantages where we see innovations from our, our different suppliers. Um, we see advantages uh, around marketing because there are really interesting stories to tell. How do you get word about that out? Is it is it through publication or how do companies show all of these things you're talking about? Yeah, I think, well, companies have to be very clever. And uh, a lot of companies who have thought about this strategically have kind of like a supply chain of information and publication. So, for instance, companies who uh, have been very forward thinking about this um, have looked at mapping their supply chain. So the first thing is, who's in my chain? And uh, how do they treat their workers? What are they like in terms of environmental sustainability? Um, what are they like in ter terms of resilience? Can they scale up? Can they scale back? Can they switch? So all those questions are asked um, uh, when you look at visibility. And when you do that, then you can start to think about, so what do I need to then publicize this? Because it's all well and good having this information, but it's not going to do much to your reputation unless you can communicate it. So you have to be quite careful, though, in the ways that you do communicate it, because lots of companies are accused of greenwashing. So one of the, the good things to do is to understand the NGO community um, and understand the multi-stakeholder initiatives that are going on around the world. If you have international NGOs that you trust and that you know are legitimate and have great um, uh, research and resources and, and things like that, then you can align with them, make sure that, that you can... Um, uh, maybe work with them to understand the hotspots and, and the vulnerabilities within your supply chain. But also a lot of the, the international NGOs have networks at a local level so that you can really understand what's going on at, at, at local levels in terms of the issues there. So for instance, in Bangladesh at the moment, if we look across multiple industries, you know, people are out of work, they're not being paid and a lot of people are starving and so the local NGOs and some of the brands are now working with those local NGOs to make sure that the people who are really desperately in need are actually being looked after. And that's great for, you know, the people on the ground, but it's also a really nice success story for the brands, which they can then communicate uh, to the world at large. So there's kind of capabilities that they have, which are working with NGOs, understanding the, the local NGO uh, networks, but also having good contacts with the media and and social media. And I think, you know, we're, uh, I work a lot with the brands, but the same thing can happen at a much smaller level with, with smaller companies to really think about what are the capabilities that we have? Uh, what are the ways that we can be resilient and change what, what we do? And then being able to communicate that on social media, being able to communicate that up to the brands that they're, um, uh, that they're working with and making sure that those stories get out and, and, and really give them the opportunities um, that, that they deserve from that. And how do you, you're talking about um, weak points or, or flash points in the supply chain, points of vulnerability maybe, both reputationally and then just logis logistically. How, what should you be looking to squeeze out of there? What, if you kind of got your, your, your magnifying glass and you studied that supply chain really intensively and closely, what are the things as a supply chain detective you'd say, we need to get rid of these things. They don't suit us ethically. They don't suit us operationally. What are the things that you'd sort of point to that you should not be seeing in there? Yeah. Well, I think, again, that's one of the things that um, companies are, are very good at. You know, they have a lot of resource 
and they like to buy in um, expertise, but a lot of the times the expertise is elsewhere. So it's really knowing, you know, when to um, ally with the NGOs and the organizations that really have that in-depth expertise. Companies can't be good at everything. And so it's really looking around expertise and and, uh, bringing those capabilities uh, and that knowledge uh, uh, into the company. Because there's loads of um, organizations out there who will identify hotspots and look um, around the world to say, you know, these are the issues that you need to deal with, whether it be child labor, whether it be forced convict labor, uh, whether it be environmental, uh, pollution, pollution into rivers, uh, waterways, uh, um, etc. And I think the other thing as well, and I think um, this has been um, very much pushed by uh, a lot of consultants and a lot of academics for, for years is, is the idea of lean and lean supply chains. And when you have a lean supply chain, it, it basically means that you have no or very little inventory anywhere within your chain. So you're keeping your costs down. The problem with lean or going too lean is the fact that you have no safety net. You know, it it kind of speaks for itself. Um, And when you don't have a safety net and you do have disruptions, um, what we call, uh, you know, um, uh, disruptions, external disruptions uh, to the system, like like we're, we're seeing at the moment, then the lean model completely falls down because you are at the, the mercy of these extremely lean supply chains with no inventory. And then if there's no inventory there, then um, you can't make anything. Are we sort of entering a post-lean phase where you, know, you, you have a buffer built into the system, a bit like the banks had to assemble one of those very hastily after 2009 and 2010? Are these big companies going to have to invest? And it is going to cost more, as you said, but to have that safety net, is this the time where that will be needed? I think so. I think, I think it was changing anyway. I think people were seeing disruptions across the board. You know, when we had Brexit for us, you know, we had that brought home to us very, very clearly in Ireland. But also the trade war between China and the US. So the forward thinking companies were starting to think, you know, we can't be as lean as we were before. We need to build agility into our systems. And, um, you know, some of the things about lean really weren't adopted by by companies, especially when you looked at kind of Western companies adopting lean. So if you look at the, the, the Japanese way of looking at lean, a lot of it was about the processes and a lot of it was about the, in, the, the, the inventory and, and the cost. But most of it was around relationships and it was about building relationships with your suppliers and ensuring that your supply base was fantastic and they were developing together and they were helping cascade the development all the way down their supply chains. And so there was lots of relationship management um, capabilities that were built into the the Japanese system that lots of the Western uh, um, companies didn't bother with. You know, they took the process parts, they took the, the technology elements, but they didn't take the people elements. And it was really the people elements that when you have a shock, when you have a crisis, those are the things that really help. Because, I mean, if you take it back, back to kind of a, an individual thought experiment about how you would be treated, if someone's treating you well and you've built up trust, you're much more likely to want to help them out when things go wrong. Someone's treated you very badly and, as you see, very unfairly. If you have the chance and they need your help, the last thing you want to do is help them because they've been so bad to you. So, you know, at a very basic level, um, I think having much more human, much more relationship-driven uh, supply chains, I think, and I hope is going to be one of the eventualities um, uh, from the crisis. 
I mean, one of the supply chains I've been noticing is if the supply chain into the bars of Dublin, for example, Guinness have said over the weekend that, you know, a lot of the product and stock that a lot of pubs in Dublin have got is now stale and they need to be replaced by new uh, <laughs> stout coming in. But on a bigger global scale, that idea that a lot of there's going to be big pressure points when this pandemic lifts and one of the measures are at least loosened somewhat in a few months time. Are we going to be into not a second wave of a, of a virus, but a second wave of supply shocks where everyone is suddenly trying to get their hands on certain things. It won't be personal protective equipment at that stage. It might be other things that go into other products and so on. So is there a danger of a second sort of run of this shock that we're seeing at the moment? I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, we don't know how the crisis is going to play out as well. So it could be that we're in for multiple shocks, you know, in, in the next uh, um, six to, to 12 months. So I think what we need to be doing now and what I'd be advising companies to do now is really look at um, your capabilities, look at your supply chains and try and understand um, if you haven't mapped your supply chain before to do that now to really see, you know, um, if there are certain parts of the supply chain where you've gone down to sole source for instance you've got one person supplying to you um because in that respect that's a really difficult um situation to manage and you should be trying to manage out of that situation um, so are there other suppliers out there who could um supply into you and if you aren't if you don't have you know a lot of power if you're not one of these big brands with big volume you have to try and make yourself an interesting customer at that point. So what is the story that you can tell as an interesting customer? What, what can you do for this supplier? So it might be, you know, in some supply chains that customers are actually having to sell themselves to the suppliers to get the supplies they need, which will be kind of an, an about face um, within certain supply chains. But yeah, I see, you know, for the next year, two years that, there will be rumbling shocks um, throughout uh, different supply chains. And also, I think certain supply chains will start to change, will start to decomplex, will start to shorten. Um, I think uh, countries, uh, nations are going to be thinking about what do we need to be more self-sufficient in? What trade agreements do we need to have put in place if there is another crisis? And I think, you know, this is the other thing about uh, coordinating at a global level, I think we need to see much more leadership at a global level so that if, and, you know, people are talking about this happening quite a lot just because of our uh, um, farming practices and things like this, that we're going to see more pandem pandemics, we're going to see more shocks like this. You know, what can we do at a global level? How do we coordinate at this global level? And what can we do as nations to ensure that we are protected and that we can protect ourselves. Donna, there's only one solution to this. We'd have to have you on again because there's so much of this area to cover. It's going to live with us. Supply chain shocks are going to become part of our economy. And, and as you say, companies need to make themselves more resilient and make themselves more agile. But thank you for this occasion. We definitely will have to have you back because there's so much complexity and layers into all of this. So for the moment, thank you very much, Professor Donna Marshall, and thank you for your perspective. Thanks very much, Emmett. Great to talk to you.